0: Welcome to Catholic Stuff You
1: Should Know, the J-10 Initiative. Hey, welcome to the podcast, of John.
0: And Jacob Machado, the Jacob new guy. Jacob
1: Machado, the new guy, coming back for round two this evening here from uh, St. Joseph Parish House in Denver, Colorado. Uh, Jacob, I was thinking about... Um, you know, uh, in the last podcast, we kind of introduced you and uh, talked a little about when we met and what you're doing. Uh, I was trying to remember the first trip we took together because we've had some, some good adventures over the years. Um,
0: did we did we go on a trip, a summer trip, before I visited you in Rome, or was that?
1: So that that is part of the question. I was trying to just think of it. I, I remember um, a trip to the San Juans where uh, we rented this really janky, uh, remember the St. Paul yeah. hut we called it that's
0: and probably the first trip i was on with you guys cause we we camped in the i think the colorado basin
1: american basin american yep, basin exactly
0: and and i remember some cars having i think yeah some cars had uh had like belt trouble so we had to load up my truck right we went up over Cinnamon Pass. Right. I broke my rear axle, but we still made it. <laughs> still made not, it. Not rear axle, rear axle. That's, <laughs> that'd be terrible. I didn't break my rear axle. I broke my rear leaf spring okay. on the bottom of the truck. You had me. I, you, I would have believed you. Um, so. Yeah, the leaf springs part of the suspension. So we were still fine, but uh, yeah. No, I think that was the first trip. And then we had that janky kind of uh, mountain mining hut.
1: Yeah, this is the... Uh, if those of you longtime listeners remember the name Becca Messel. Now, sister Nunciata, she found this place, and uh, it was pretty, pretty janky. Um, I remember the guy showing us around, and uh, he shows us this door in the in the floor. You remember that? And he goes, <laughs> "Don't open it. Don't open that." And we're like, "Why?" And he's like, "That goes down forty flight, or uh, uh, it's like a forty foot building mine shaft below." And we're like. Okay, note to solve. Don't open that. Don't open that.
0: Um, That was also where the the inaugural spike ball tournament happened. That's right. We drove up to the top of the mountain, and uh, I'm sure this is on a podcast way before you were talking about it because it was so epic. It was like a little mountain peak hill between the real mountains that created its own like amphitheater
1: it was unbelievable like a little indent yeah.
0: at the very top where we got to play spike ball for like four hours
1: that was amazing and you are a rather nimble spike ball player if i remember correctly
0: i was like 22 or three at that, that time. that is so. true that helps
1: <laughs> yeah that was a uh that was a great trip we had ty gilbert uh cooking on some really old gross kind of mining stove but he was pulling out amazing stuff um alana boudreaux did a concert that night uh yeah, those she, are magical she and, she
0: and perry west and perry music west and, right uh, like there's something about friends and music and uh it was, it was awesome yeah uh,
1: oh man these uh these stories sometimes feel like a different lifetime ago i'm starting to talk like an old guy um and i'm starting to feel like an old guy uh just little things like um well i was gonna this is another topic but i was gonna <laughs> say i was gonna prepare you for podcasting with father mike by asking you uh some random questions oh so here's the first one what'd you ask for for christmas
0: this year, um, oh shoot, uh, a wallet. I'm a nerd now. So I asked for one of those bookmarks that holds big books open. Oh yeah. And I got that and I was like the best gift I got. My older brother got me that and he, he was making fun of me when he saw it on my list. And then, uh, he ordered it and kind of took it out of the packaging to see. It, and he, he was even like, no, this is actually pretty cool. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Those are actually, uh, no, this is actually the first year we did, um, we did a, a secret Santa with the adults in my family. So we just kind of had a little list. I think the, the most um, out there thing I put on my list was a, a foraging guide to the Rocky mountain wilderness, oh, but I okay. uh, didn't get that yet. So. didn't get that. Yet, Maybe okay. this year on the Colorado trail, I'll have some knowledge.
1: That's right. All right, Mary Machado, we're looking to you next year for the foraging. <laughs> I uh, got this really ridiculous gift uh, from my mom. It was like a fish this big. Very different colored. It looked ridiculous. And I was like, What is this? And she's like, This is a heat pad. So it's got all these <laughs> little kind of have you seen these things? Like little like marble type things inside and you kind of put it on your neck and I was like, I've never
0: seen one shaped like a fish before. Exactly.
1: A huge look like a big carp or something. And uh so I was like, um, that's ridiculous, So I do what I do with all of my uh, ridiculous gifts from my mom. I leave it at my sister's house accidentally, and oh, yeah. she finds it and she's like, "Get this out of here. I don't want this huge fish." Well, so I get rid of it. Uh, it ends up back in my mom's house, where everything kind of ends up. And then two weeks later, I wake up. You know where this is going? Unbelievable neck pain. <laughs> Just like I don't, I don't know what I did. It lasted for three days. I'm on the phone with Steve Sayo, like our friend who's a physical therapist. I'm like, "I cannot function. And he's like, you know what you need? And I was like, let me guess.
0: Heat pad. A heat pad. And if and it's he's shaped like, like a fish, it's he's even like, better
1: ergonomically. Exactly. So I'm digging through my sister's house, and she's like, it's that mom's. And I'm digging through my mom's. She's like, sorry. And just like the Minnesota nice ended in that moment. It was like, you should have taken the fish. And I was like, ugh.
0: So <laughs> I'm looking forward to podcasting with Father Mike. I don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, I was thinking in class on um, this past week, we somehow got on the topic of do aliens Exist?
1: Um, oh, yeah. He's big on an aliens kick. He couldn't, podcasted couldn't even, on that Couldn't even
0: tell you why it came up. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting in the back of class like, me and Father Mike are going to get nowhere on the podcast yeah. because I'm going to follow him down these rabbit holes, yeah. and I'm not Father John to stop and get to topic. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you might get 45 minutes of aliens next week. I don't know.
1: Yeah. The, the, you never know. You <laughs> literally never know. After 17 years, I've, I met this guy. I met Rap when I was 18. I have no idea uh, where he's going with things. Um, what do you think of his Mr. Tumnus? We got a lot of facial hair going right now. Uh, <laughs> yours is tame, but I got the ski beard, and Rap has this kind of—you know—I'm talking about Mr. Tumnus. Oh from, yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah.
0: I had a, I had the mustache that I curled up every so often, but I cut that off for the sister's wedding, and ah uh, uh, yeah. So I'm I'm back to show respect, normal, but uh, I like Father Mike's um, not for the uh, the Tumnus look explicitly. But I love that he's got that like one gray strip yeah. that goes, and it's not even perfectly centered. It's just off to the side, and it's just something show, so uh, attention-grabbing, which is absolutely probably right. why he's got it. Um, I just think it's fun. I don't know. There I'm, was, not, I'm not opposed. To
1: there it. was some guys who are uh, who were a bit shocked by the facial hair of yeah. the companions. It's
0: better than the rat tail was. I'll say that.
1: Absolutely. The rat tail was, yeah, the ultimate trashy, but... Yeah, it's funny when seminarians are more clean cut than their formators and professors are, and they look at us like, "You guys are just absolute nuts." So,
0: yeah, it helps us all be on the same team.
1: Favorite uh, animal in the zoo?
0: Oh, I love the otters. Oh yeah, they're uh, they're just fun to watch. So your spirit animal? Probably not. Um, I joked in in Sy, my spirit animal was either the the playful golden retrieval pup retriever puppy or like a stallion that's just standing there like oh, look at me look at me
1: uh, there you go so it's i got you know,
0: it's a little bit split personality there but uh.
1: half stallion half golden <laughs> that makes sense i could see that i could see that <laughs>
0: but the otters is the most fun to watch
1: yeah uh. um i was on scalig michael outside of the coast of ireland with rap and i saw his i saw this bird come running across the island and there was a bunch of them and i was like that's your spirit animal mike you're a puffin <laughs> they're so funny so if you look at like Guinness cans you see these puffins and things so anyways it's getting late enough of this banter no it's good i have uh two different kind of ideas that i want to pull together and i'm not totally sure if it's gonna happen i actually haven't really thought this through so i'm gonna um see if uh this is not a test you're not you're not in class i'm
0: gonna sit here like i'm in class and just listen with a skeptic eye and interject every 25 30 minutes
1: Uh, right exactly occasionally kind of do the David Hall, kind of just take notes for, like, he's definitely not taking notes.
0: <laughs> I am taking notes. They're just not about class. They're like, they're like, oh, this is a thought I just had, and I need to remember. Right.
1: I respect that, yeah. Again, you guys are way better students than we are, so.
0: Maybe, I don't know, we'll find out.
1: Are you familiar with uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand?
0: Yes, uh, moderately. Okay. I know him, our last podcast, Max Shaler, uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand was a friend of his.
1: Right, so there's some interesting parallels here. So Shaler and von Hildebrand are both converts to Catholicism, I think Shaler was a little earlier. I think he was 1890s, um, and um, von Hildebrand would have been like in the teens. They were both studying under this guy they called Dermeister. Meister um, Husserl. Yeah, Edmund yeah. Husserl. And who were was they the f-
0: contemporary with Edith Stein as well? And Edith yeah. Stein's
1: also in there as well, right? So, uh, John Paul II. We didn't mention this in the last podcast, but he wrote his uh, doctoral dissertation on Sch- on uh, Max Shaler uh, So, these guys—it was all kind of connected. Basically, phenomenology was trying to um, work out of modernity, which had lost touch with reality. So uh, it was kind of idealistic in the sense that um, we had lost experience. Can I actually know the things that I'm looking at? I'm touching this soundboard and this microphone. Is this real? Can I actually have knowledge of that? We had lost that ever since Descartes. Phenomenology is like let's get back in to studying the way that things are known and the way that things manifest themselves. And so these guys have a very interesting approach. Now, Shaler doesn't remain Catholic, uh, but von Hildebrand becomes, um, I think, one of the most amazing Catholics of the last century. So his life was a heroic battle. He he um, denounces Nazism as soon as it comes to power. This is long before the, the war breaks out um, and uh, ends up fleeing to Austria and then kind of makes his way through. And um, When I was in Boulder, I met his great-niece, um, So this guy, Nicholas Coral, was my neighbor, and he was this kind of wild German character um, that I really liked hanging out with and uh, spending way too much time with, um, quite honestly, drinking too much with. But his wife, Olga, who was much more saintly than we were, is a von Hildebrand. So when I was in Germany with Rap studying, uh, we hung out with their family and got to know them a little bit. And so it's it's amazing that this guy who died in the 70s, um, and his wife actually just passed away, Alice von Hildebrand, just passed away uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, they these are contemporaries, but heroic and amazing lives in many ways. the magnum opus of this guy von Hildebrand is a book called Transformation in Christ which i 've always been very intimidated to read because it 's really long it 's like six hundred pages. Finally read it um, and i 'm doing a lot i 've been doing a lot of work with him recently um, but I was very intrigued by the first chapter basically, transformation in Christ is a study of the what he calls the Christian attitude. so what does it look like when somebody takes on faith, in the words of St. Thomas a living faith, right? This isn't just like I was baptized and I kind of do Catholic things, but like when the faith is alive in someone, what does that look like? And what are the qualities of that person, right? What are the specific virtues uh, that he or she starts to embody, right? What are the, the spiritual attitudes might be a better way of putting it? How do they see the world? How are they disposed? What do they do? And uh, he, the whole book is just a list of maybe 30 or 35 of them. But the first one uh, was the one that struck me the most readiness to change. Readiness to change. And what he says is this he's got a, he talks about this kind of everywhere, but um, he says, uh, I'm looking for a specific word Um, readiness to change is the fundamental precondition to transformation in Christ. All right. Readiness to change. Uh, is the prerequisite or the or the fundamental precondition to transformation in Christ?
0: I love that. I love that because I am just thinking from perspective of a, a seminarian, we're we're seven years of formation. And what does that mean? Formation. Um, from an artistic standpoint, formation to form, to create a, a form of something, um, is to shape, to to reveal. Uh, the the truth, the good, the beautiful thing that you're trying to make, right? And so in seminary formation, we are trying to, as first actors in our own formation, but Father John as a formator, as a teacher, everybody on the formation staff, mold uh, each of us into who we are. But that means we have to stop clinging to things that we aren't. Yeah. Um, And that's really hard to do. And, you know, if I if I'm clinging to a dream that I had growing up of, of being something other than a priest, um, I've got to change. you know. And I, so I just see a parallel there that, that I love, that to transform in Christ, you have to be ready to change. Absolutely. It's, it's not going to be just, here's my plan, now I'm transformed. It,
1: <laughs> and it's the first prerequisite. So transformation in Christ, um, whether you're a seminarian, whether you're a priest, or you're a layperson, married single doesn't really particularly matter. We don't like to change. And um, especially as we get older, like right? the, the cement, so to speak, starts to, it starts to um, kind of freeze up. It, it starts to harden and we get very set in our ways. Um, and uh, I, I just found this, like I lived in Rome um, and I was in a community of priests, but it was more like an apartment complex of priests. We all had our own room and we kind of lived our own thing. And then I came back here and it was just like dumped into community life again. And I was like, Whoa, this is difficult. Right. Uh, homeboy doesn't refill the, uh, Brita water filter in the, uh, and I know exactly who does it every time, but I haven't caught him. Right. And, uh, it's like, this is like, okay, why are you getting so upset about the Brita water filter? Well, this is just, um, community life kind of re enforces this. Um, But it's hard to stay, especially when we get into seminary life um, or into priesthood or into marriage, it's hard to stay with a fundamental disposition of readiness to change. We don't like to change. We like to be set in our ways. The enemy of change, uh, of readiness to change, is, uh, I would call, kind of the fortress of self-preservation. I'm good, man. I like where I'm at. I'm going to keep you right here.
0: It's safe. I don't love it, right? But I know it.
1: Yeah, I actually don't really like it, but at least it's safe. Um, and we live in so much fear of change. When that readiness to change, readiness is the is the fundamental disposition. We we actually can't be transformed in Christ unless we really want to change. This uh, weekend, um, I'm doing the uh, marriage prep retreat with Father Brian Larkin and Father Sean Conroy uh, at Our Lady Lords. I'm bringing one couple; they're bringing uh, thirty-five. And uh, it's going to be the usual talks we give, and we've been doing this for a long time, and and we really enjoy it, but I've been tasked with giving what's called the bourbon talk. You've heard about the bourbon talk. Oh, yeah. The bourbon talk is what?
0: Well, the bourbon talk is when you finally, without hiding, just lay out the entire Catholic sexual ethic, right. contraception, openness to life, uh, why why premarital sex is damaging. Uh, you know. And uh, I think you call it the bourbon talk because you're used to uh, have to drink a bourbon while you were giving it together. Exactly.
1: It. Yeah. I'm not as intimidated as I used to be, but we used to pour a tall bourbon for the uh sucker who drew the uh short straw and had to give the bourbon talk. It's basically laying out everything that uh, uh most of these young couples don't want to hear. Um many of them are kind of despondent uh about the faith. Some of them are actively hostile, and I mean hostile. Um, some of them are, are already sold out, but, but the question is how do you encourage a kind of readiness to change in the human heart so that they can hear these things for the first time and say, well, maybe we can, maybe we can ascend to that. Maybe we can do that. Maybe it's possible to live this way and maybe it's actually going to lead to a deeper kind of human happiness and flourishing. That, that's the, the million dollar question. And I think that humanity is a big is a big part of that. We've talked about that, you know, and creating a kind of dialogue. But you can't make somebody ready to change. Right? You can't
0: change somebody else. And you can't when, change when a somebody. A violent else. imposition uh, never takes.
1: And so Christ is not going to do that. He's not going to uh, say, um, Jacob, I'm going to force you to be cha- to change. He's going to say, if you're ready for change, I'm going to I'm going to give you the grace to do it. And I'm going to give you the grace to love it. Um, Balthazar has this phrase. He talks about Mary, uh, the fiat. And he says, when we embody Mary's fiat, Mary's be it done, which is the ultimate act of readiness, he says it creates a kind of existential pliability in the soul. And I always love that phrase. Pliability. Um, we're not hardened in positions. We're not frozen uh, in the church, in the faith. But we're we're nimble and we're, we're loose and we're flexible. And you think about like, Soreness. I was talking about the soreness in my neck. What's happening? The the muscles are tightening. They're constricting, right? And stretching is about loosening. So, st- what stretching does to the body, um, this is what readiness does to the soul.
0: I think. Uh, just throw in a quick quick example. Saint Joseph. I mean, I've been been reflecting on Saint Joseph with the feast uh, last week, and he was ready to change as a just and righteous man. He had decided to put Mary away yeah. quietly in divorce. And he he thought of it, he discerned it. Maybe it was, you know, reverential kind of fear of what was going on or maybe it was suspicion. I don't know. There's theories out there. But he had decided and he went he went to sleep. He decided he went to sleep and he's like, "All right, Lord, this is what I'm doing." Then God spoke. Yeah. God spoke. What did he do? He changed immediately, took Mary into his house. You know, so I think Joseph's a model there of of that pliability.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, another word is like disponability. We don't really even have a good word for it. Availability just um you know, Joseph is so attuned to the voice of God and to the movement of the spirit in the soul that he just
0: boom, doesn't? Yeah. It. And it's not a uh, it's not like a hectic uh like like I don't know um <laughs> uh, frenetic always changing you know i'm not i'm not pliable to change because today i wake up and i'm like oh catholic awesome tomorrow i'm going to be buddhist the next day i'm going to explore something else and then you know i'm going to be in seminary then i'm going to run off to puerto rico and exactly it, it's, it's not this this um, restlessness that is always seeking something different that's not the change it's this this transformation i think transformation
1: that's it, it it's a readiness to change it's not change for change's sake it's not just like i need to have totally new experiences all the time um it's not that kind of endless pursuit it's about a disposition and a decision to say i'm not going to live in self-assertion i'm not going to live in the self really i'm just i'm i'm going to live in something deeper that if i that i actually can be transformed in christ i just have to begin with a readiness to change um couple weeks ago we did a podcast on, the, uh, on Dante and it was a pretty huge sweeping overview of a couple of big things. But one of the images I love is at the bottom of the uh, Mount of Purgatory. So Purgatory is depicted as this huge mountain, which is steepest at the bottom uh, and, grad- and and gets gradual towards the top. And you climb faster the higher you go up. It says a lot about the, the nature of Christian conversion. But it's really hard at the bottom. right? It's hard to get going on this thing. And one of the things that Dante and Virgil encounter uh, at the bottom of the Mount of Purgatory, this is before they've passed through the gate to the Mount of Purgatory, which is guarded by this angel. And that's where the seven deadly sins then become worked out, uh, starting with pride, ending with lust. Before that is all these kind of people, and uh, they're in anti-purgatory in the sense of like Preparation. And what are they doing? Well, there's a couple things, but one of them is that they're self-preoccupied. So they're so self-preoccupied that they're not even about the work of metanoia, of conversion, of purification of sin. And I think this is a lot of us. I see a lot of my days squandered in self-preoccupation when I'm not actually attentive to what God is doing. And self-preoccupation freezes us and it renders impossible Readiness to change because we don't want to change because we're just in ourselves.
0: Isn't it ironic that, uh, I mean the, this self help industry is just, here's how you change. Yeah. By focusing on yourself. Right. Always. And you finish that book. Well, I'm not changed yet. So I need to read another book for myself about myself to change myself. I see. (laughs) I'm imagining anti-purgatory is just like the Barnes and Noble self help section for years
1: yeah that's it just reading through the self-help section well walker percy is the great um kind of satirist on self-help just kind of making he wrote a book called lost in the cosmos the the last self-help book and it's all just a satire on the whole thing um but one of the things he points out and i i love this is he says um have you ever noticed when you look at a photo say you're looking at a we're looking at a machado family extended family photo you're looking for yourself
0: it did it two days ago?
1: Yeah, it's it, and if you're saying ah, I don't do that, it's like yeah, you do. We why are we looking for ourselves in photos? Is it because we're selfish? No, it's because we're we're trying to discover the self. Like we're trying to find ourselves and human persons. And we won't go into this; this could be a whole other podcast topic. But human persons, um, we spiritually interpret reality. Dogs don't do that, right? Mm-hmm. Your little fur babies don't do that. Okay they are not spiritually interpreting reality um and they can think sim- uh, human beings can think symbolically they can think about self but the problem is you can't interpret the self because you are the self so you are a problem to yourself um and that's why whenever we start anything with self dash preoccupation self-creation self-actualization self-help whatever this is not going to be sufficient now self-knowledge uh, self-awareness even self-accusation there's an element of this in the christian life but he doesn't start with um you need to have a self i don't know actualizing disposition for transformation in christ it's about you need to be ready to change which probably means to die
0: yeah and the church tells us uh through the council gaudium et spes 22 jesus christ reveals man fully to himself Uh, man is only revealed to himself through the incarnation yeah Uh, and it's it's. I mean, even looking there, the incarnation is a transformation of humanity to, to invite humanity into God, right? And so even that transformation is, is divinely inspired first, uh, and then we are revealed to ourselves. Um, and it's, yeah, I just, there's a wall when it's me solving myself.
1: Totally. It's so funny because people really largely pity us as Christians, um, thinking, oh, they're just trapped in this kind of antiquated uh, worldview and they're not really emancipated and, you know, liberal, they're not woke, whatever. And it's like, it's just hard to explain how you and I, at a certain point, choosing Christ, we became free. Free of what? Free of a slavery. Mm-hmm. Free of an illusion that I can actually interpret myself and become myself. Yeah. I actually can't do that.
0: I think it was either Stein... Um, I'm probably wrong here. Dr. Wright will correct me, but (laughs) uh, I think Edith Stein talked about how the, um, the idea, the, the kind of idea of your entirety, your, your full personhood is held in the mind of God, the knowledge of God. So God knows who he created you to be. And our creative project of life is becoming that. Yeah. With the aid of grace, because God is drawing us to that. And so, uh, in a, in a strange way we are that and we are not yet that mm-hmm. you know um because we are but we're being moved to it and i think that's um maybe an image to help this this idea of self tra- transformation or uh, transformation and receptiveness to change um it's it's a becoming yeah it's less of a you know i'm i'm going to be a turtle tomorrow um which we're doing across the world we're saying like i don't like what i am here so i am now this and you have to accept that. And that's just, it doesn't work. But the transformation is really a becoming yeah. of your, your real, authentic, true reality, which God knows and is drawing you to.
1: The, for the Christian, the fundamental category is not self-help. It's vocation, is exactly what you just said, which is a calling, right? Which is a way of wedding my freedom to God's freedom, so that I come to the fullness of who I am, because I actually don't know who I'm supposed to be. I don't even know what I desire. And Jordan Peterson kind of calls this out, and I think it's really refreshing to people. And I don't know if his answer is exactly the best thing, but he he has a deep sense of like, you are left to yourself, you're going to be a tragic, tragic failure of of self-affirmation. It's just not going to happen. So the question then becomes... How do we dispose ourselves? Living in fear, living in wounds, living in resentment, as we talked about last time. How do we? How do we dispose ourselves and dispose others for a des- actually desiring to change, a readiness to change? And this is where I'll introduce this little book by Conrad Bars. Do you know this?
0: I haven't read that one either.
1: <laughs> Born only once, the miracle of affirmation. I actually have only just started reading it. Um, so Bars is a. Uh, um, is a, a Dutch-born American uh, psychologist who dies in 1981. Um, amazing, amazing Catholic man and a deep kind of thinker, but he wrote this small book, Born Only Once, um, to help people with who have what's called emotional deprivation disorder, basically who lacked affirmation to a greater or lesser degree, and, um, Throughout part of their childhood or their formation. And this leads to feelings of deep inferiority, inadequacy, uncertainty, insecurity, uh, and just basic, baseline difficulty in relating to others. But, uh, and so this offers kind of a way of healing, and not just for people who have the disorder, but for all of us who, in some way, uh, lack what he'll call an authentic affirmation. Now, you were in a household at Studentville. Correct. AMDG. That is it. Did you guys ever sit around in a circle and affirm each other?
0: Uh, no, I didn't way. think so. You guys were doing stupid <laughs> crap. I mean, the formation flirting of, with stellas. Of, well, of course, but uh, the uh, the the fraternity was there, and there was uh, an, an affirmation of presence, right? But the being affirmed in like. Wow, that's that's really great you did that. Yeah. Um, I think even there, we're, we're a bunch of college kids. We're still in competition with each other. As much as we were together and in a group and in a household, uh, we're still competing. Yeah. And, and I think competition is a is a huge um, detriment to, to affirmation because I want to win. Uh,
1: it is. But one of the reasons we don't like the word affirmation is because it seems cheesy and lame. Yep. But my brother was a part of your household prior to your time there. You didn't overlap, did you? No, we no. were
0: about two years off.
1: Two years apart. And I just remember him coming into a, a deeper place of his own identity of self-confidence um, because it really was um, a a really rich, affirming culture of men. And, I mean, AMDG, these guys are paragons of idiocy, um, <laughs> a confederacy of dunces. I mean, it is... Uh, the, the things they did, uh, yeah, we, if we had time to tell these stories, I mean, unbelievable. We got up to stuff. Yeah. But at the end of the day... There was a deep sense of presence, uh, as you said. That yeah, the you, brotherhood
0: was receptive. We, yeah. we received the other the brothers, and uh, and there was a freedom to acknowledge our our weakness and our failure in front of the brothers, um, and ask for help. Uh, so, the culture, at least, I think, yeah, was was affirming. Yeah, uh, even if the um, sitting around and. Given three affirmations to each other, wasn't really there
1: exactly. And I think, as I read a couple of thoughts from uh, Bars here, I think I think you'll agree that it actually really was an authentically affirming culture. And I guess the point of the connection that we're arriving at tonight is authentic affirmation. Authentic, okay, not just cheese affirmation, but authentic affirmation disposes and stirs our hearts with a desire for readiness to change. So Mm -hmm. we really need this as a as a dimension of our life. His companions, we need that you need this in your marriages. We need this in seminary culture, but again, authentic affirmation. All right. So here's what he says: um, affirmation is being, not doing. That was the first thing that struck me. Contrary to what many people think, there is little actual doing involved in affirmation. Authentic affirmation is first of all state of being. Only secondarily may it be lead to doing, to acts or to words that may then complete the affirmation to the other. These do not constitute the essence or core of the affirming process to explain this more precisely is one of the reasons why I decided to write this book for there is much pseudo affirmation being practiced nowadays and not enough authentic affirmation, especially in various therapeutic and counseling situations. The young generation uh, that are being parented um, are really broken by, especially by kind of the way technology has impressed itself. We've talked about the forces of ideology and just straight up COVID, right? Um, post COVID world. The mistake though is a kind of coddling of the kind of Gen Z um because of their woundedness and their fear and insecurity. And and there's a lot of pseudo-affirmation of this young generation going on. And I think that we need to strike at a at a more profound uh and authentic affirmation, one that's rooted not in doing and saying and kind of I don't know, engaging at these low, but, but of just kind of being, we need an- aff- kind of an affirmation being to rebuild the culture.
0: Yeah. I mean, how often do you really believe you're good? Um, and, and I'm thinking of, uh, the example of like a married couple, if I just were to, were to tell a wife that she's beautiful and I love her and she's good, but I never act in any way. I'm, I'm always out with the boys. Um, dismissive whenever she asked for something or wants to, you know, spend time, I can say all the right things. And I'm going to tell her that she's only desirable when I want her in my life. Not, not because she is. Um, and I think friendship, family, I mean, how often do we, we learn that? And I, with, with social media, our affirmations are, you know, my post was liked or wasn't, uh, I got 10,000 views or I didn't. And, um, yeah, Particularly the young generation, just it's it's amazing to me. Even the uh, the body insecurity that we've seen in women, because we've absolutely distorted the value of women to be strictly physical beauty. But even in young men now, I mean the the destruction of needing to be affirmed in their body is just it's it's really heartbreaking. Yeah,
1: and again, not to just like hate on the younger generation. I think we all struggle with this, but there's something about the 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 way that social media kind of reconditions yeah. us of this is what affirmation is yeah, they're it's experiencing likes. It it's this right it's uh it, so there's an it's it's intensified um and it's become far more damaging but all of us stand in need of that the the nice thing is to say if you know you're not affirming enough again on this kind of deeper ontological level he says don't lose courage you need only do less and be more for your own sake as well as for others. So I think about the men in this house. They need a father who is present, who's gentle, who's strong, but also who is deeply affirming. And I think about the men who have, who have modeled this for my life. Um, my godfather, Uncle David, who has passed away. Um, very rarely did he ever like explicitly affirm what I was doing. But I just, I felt affirmed by his being. Mm-hmm. It's the same with Archbishop Shapu, who will take us to task over our idiocy. But being around him affirms my being. So I don't have to sit and wait for compliments. And we we mm-hmm. do this, especially if you're sanguine and you're tortured by this, is you're just kind of always kind of, trying to collect the next affirmation from somebody and then you just realize it immediately doesn't satisfy. Right. <laughs> I
0: was talking to my aunt. Uh, she's a, a social worker and um, she actually shared that, that the long-term effects of neglect uh, look almost exactly the same as physical, verbal, sexual abuse. Mm. Um, the, I mean, the, the acute experience is very different and there might be certain traumas that are different, but the long-term effects. Yeah. Of neglect just are on the same graph and um and so the presence the presence of affirm- affirmation of pre- presence is is profound here
1: yeah so the absence of presence the experience of neglect of the rejection and pain that comes from betrayal this leads to what yeah. the lie that the only way i can find happiness is through my own self-affirmation so i will spend my life self-affirming and these are the people that you meet and you talk to, and uh, they they talk only about themselves. It's just like they're working out a monologue, and we've all done this, right? But to allow yourselves to be authentically affirmed by in a in a true way, uh, that's the kind of thing that really creates a kind of stability in us that makes us to say, okay, I feel safe enough and loved enough to change, because that's that's what we got to get to. Because if we don't want to change, if we're not ready to change, uh, that's that's the reason, and that's totally understandable. So then he continues and he says, "Okay, in order to become open to all existing goodness and thus find happiness through affirming that goodness, whether in beings or in things, you first have to be yourself. In order to be yourself, you first have to become yourself. In order to become yourself, you first have to receive the gift of yourself." Okay. So he says, "This is this book. What we're laying out here. This isn't this isn't so much a." a how-to book it's more how to be or how to become right so we have to be okay with being ourselves and how do we do that by becoming ourselves how do we become ourselves well not by i don't know uh, sharpening all of our awesome talents and proving to others how important and successful and amazing we are but just by as he said receiving the gift of ourselves more deeply that's how you become yourself
0: Back to the, the topic of vocation and even just maturation, right? Because uh, becoming myself also isn't just um, take me as I am, mm-hmm. not changing. Mm-hmm. If, you can't, if you, can't have, uh, you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best type of mentality of like, you know, take it or leave it. I'm not going to do anything about it. You know, that's the flip side. Yeah. Uh, yeah
1: and it's not, uh, we, we should qualify that, like receiving oneself as a gift means that you're, you're receiving yourself from God. In relationship, it's not self-affirmation, and that that's the pre that's the kind of disposition uh, that sets us up to be able to affirm others, and uh, we're not going to be affirming mothers, fathers, friends, whatever, if we're not in that place. But I just think this kind of affirmation as being, not as doing, I think it's very intriguing, yeah. um, and the the key word he always is striking on is firm, the firmness of a person is what allows to affirm another person, yeah. so to speak, right? One sense of own firmness. Each human being is totally dependent on other human being's gift of affirmation, right? You, if you are affirmed, if you're firm and strong in yourself, then you can firm up other people, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the last point here, then we'll close it off. Awareness, being moved, and revealing constitute the essence of affirmation, okay? So again, We immediately think affirmation means sit in a circle, say three nice things about the person on your left. That is not what he's talking about. He said that's actually a cheap pseudo-affirmation, right? Um, Awareness, being moved, and revealing constitute the essence of affirmation. Anything more, helpful words, deeds, advice, gifts, acts of kindness, support, silence, patient waiting, or so on, these are concrete expressions of affirmations but not their essence, affirmation is first of all affectivity only secondarily is it effectivity so after the level of being we have to realize that affirmation is about affection affective we need to be we need to be affected by other people and to be aware of what's happening um and uh this is the challenge is that we so instinct especially for people like myself we just want to immediately move into like we're just filing through and kind of intellectually working out like, okay, what is the right thing that I say to help them, to mm-hmm. fix them, to resolve this problem, to pull them out of this tension, to be needed by them, whatever it is, right? Uh, this is precisely the problem. He's like, that's not affirmation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, receiving receiving the presence of the other, receiving the gift of the other, inspiring that that relationship of of, I guess mutual growth even. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you receive how do you receive that identity from God? I'm thinking, you know, scripturally, there's there's certain characters that receive it directly from God. You, know, Moses, oh, I'm not a good speaker. I can't do this. And God said, no, I made you for this. And yeah. You're going to be fine. Uh, Jeremiah, same thing, yeah. you know. You're going to go be my prophet. Oh, I'm too young. I'm like, I can't speak, da, da, da. Well, here, you're going to be purified with this heavenly coal and you're now going to go prophesy for me. These are These are experiences of men receiving their mission, their vocation, their identity, you know, in a very strict way. But how do we do that Day to day, and in, in the other. I mean, we're even a non Christian truth in Aristotle. You know, we're, we're communal beings. We live in a, in a community and, and we receive from the other. We receive prudence from another. We receive education. How do we receive our identity? That's the question.
1: That's it. Yeah. As Aristotle said, you can't know virtues except as they're modeled by other people. So too with identity, right? Disco- the discovery of who I am happens outside of me. I cannot figure out who I am. That is a that is a very difficult thing to assimilate and to interiorize. I need others to not just help me, but to literally do it. And affirmation is part of the key. So authentic affirmation, the kind of that flows out of a person's being, their bearing, their posture towards you, their receptivity of you. This is what sets us up for that fundamental precondition. Uh, precondition uh, of the Christian life, that which transforms us, which is readiness to change. So many of us don't want to change. I don't want to change. I'm guessing you probably don't really want to change. We don't want people to change us, certainly not to fix us. But with authentic affirmation, we, we're we strong enough then. We're strengthened in order to do that. And once we are transformed in Christ, then everything, everything truly changes from there.
0: I'm just thinking of um, people in my life that have inspired change in my life. It's usually... It's it's not seminary example. It's not the brother who comes and tells me, "Hey, you're doing this wrong. Right. Change." It's the brother who does and models what I need to do. Yeah. It's it's the older brother in seminary, the the guy further along in formation, it's the deacon who's modeling service that I see and I say, "Oh, that's how that's done. I should probably start doing that." But it's not just a like a Herculean uh, duty ethic. Um, it's no, that's, that's good. I see the goodness in it too. I see, I see, you know, the service of Deacon Matt Christian's, you know, cooking for everybody at the St. Joseph's party. And they say, oh, that's how, that's how to be hospitable. Mm-hmm. That's how to welcome people in to, to feed. Um, and then it says, oh, there's a goodness there. I can do that too. That's, uh, it almost tricks you. Your yeah. transformation comes when you're not looking for it, when you just see it modeled.
1: That's it, and I think when it's modeled by uh, people, well, then yeah, we just find ourselves ready to change. We we actually want to change, and it doesn't become this kind of discursive, awkward thing. We just we just change.
0: I think that's um, for the better. How many times do we see saint companions? I mean, throughout you you have these not companions, but you know, saint companions, right? Yeah, saints who are friends, right? Companions in life, right? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you, you know. Benedict and Scholastic siblings, um, the the early Jesuits together, uh, the early Franciscans. Um, you just you have all these pairings of names. You know, Saint Rose of Lima and, and Martin de Porres knew each other. You know, there's just this when saints get together, they transform others, not because they're coming in with a ten step program. They're living transformed lives, and other people say, "Wow, that's possible," mm-hmm. wow. Um, and it's attractive.
1: We better stop there it's almost 10 o'clock so um anyway thank you the uh shout outs you got any
0: i ran out of of my shout outs last time yeah i I prepped uh comedic material and shout outs for one (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly and then we did
1: two. well you got a couple weeks before you uh can begin with more comedic material and shout outs for father mike um this Sunday, last Sunday, I uh, had one of the great joys of my priestly life, which was hearing um, my nephew, Jackson John's, first confession. And that's the first time I've done that for a nephew or a niece, and uh, it was pretty unbelievable. And I look forward to the day when you can uh, you can share that, because uh, it, it, it was one of the most kind of precious moments I think I've ever experienced, and it was really beautiful. So shout out to him, he did a great job, and then especially to his parents, my sister Katie and my brother-in-law Jordan. Um, they are they're living without realizing it everything we're talking about they're, they're, they have the kind of authentic affirming culture in their family uh, and it's, it's creating the kind of young men who are firm enough uh, to desire change readiness to change and I have great hope for their life it's going to be a wild ride she's got four boys when they all hit teenage years it's going to get gnarly, uh, but I have great, uh, great hope that the foundation that has been laid is so strong uh, that these boys will grow into authentic men and uh, holy men. So, shout out to them. Amen. All right, well done.
0: That's
1: you been, uh, uh, earned your earned your white rascal tonight.
0: All right, it's been the Catholic Stuff Podcast. What's the? I need to learn the email.
1: Uh, Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. You want to close us up?
0: I can't remember how that is. Catholic All
1: right. stuff yeah usually Father Mike's
0: alright
1: thanks everybody for listening and we will see you next week